SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program today, we have a conversation with uh, Francis Rings talking about uh, Yoldea, her inaugural work as Bangara Dance Theatre's artistic director. Yoldea is premiering at the Sydney Opera House tonight as part of the Opera House's 50th season before touring Australia till later this year. On NITV Radio today, we also bring you a conversation with uh, Janine Mohamed, CEO of the Loija Institute. We'll be exploring together Norwegia's third global health and well-being conference that's kicking off in Keynes today. As you'll hear, this conference brings together the largest gathering of indigenous health experts from across Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the United States since the pandemic. On NITV Radio today, we'll also be joined by Professor Julie Andrews, Academic Director of Indigenous Research at La Trobe University, who has just been awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia at the King's Birthday 2023 Honours List. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Bertrand Tungandame Ngaya, I am Bertrand Tungandame. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, the Minister for Indigenous Australians says anti-voice campaign underpinned by an attempt to mislead voters. The Australian government expected to remove all remaining refugees and asylum seekers from Nauru. And Donald Trump leaves court after pleading not guilty to all 37 federal charges. The Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, has accused those opposing the voice to Parliament of adopting a Donald Trump-style approach to politics. Ms Burney made the comments in a speech to the Committee for Economic Development of Australia at Parliament House. She says the anti-voice campaign is underpinned by an attempt to mislead voters. Friends, I fear that the No campaign are importing American-style Trump politics to Australia. At the heart is a post-truth approach to politics. Its aim, its aim is to polarise people. And, to, and its weapon of choice is misinformation. In the meantime, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, said that the Australian public is not ready for the Indigenous voice to Parliament. 
Speaking at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia State of the Nation lunch, Mr Dutton says the federal government has failed to outline details of the proposed voice to the Australian public. This comes after new polling data released on Monday from a resolved strategic poll for nine newspapers shows support for the Indigenous voice fell below a majority for the first time, dropping from 53 to 49%. This was the third consecutive month that voters had swung against the proposal in the organization's polling. Mr. Dutton says he believes this support will deteriorate further. We have a situation where I don't think the public is ready for the voice and I don't think it's been properly explained. Uh, the slide is obvious and you've now seen uh, the no take over the yes in numbers and I think it will deteriorate further. I don't care how many people come out in support of the voice from sporting codes or public listed companies or churches or anything else. The Australian public wants the detail and this is the crucial point. By design, the Prime Minister has taken a decision not to provide the detail. Refugee advocates say the federal government is expected to remove all remaining refugees and asylum seekers from Nauru by the end of the month. Those currently on the island have been told there will be no further support for them after June the 30th and say they expected to be moved to Australia before then. It's been over 10 years since offshore processing restarted on the Pacific Island nation. There are about a dozen people left on the island with the government progressively transferring people from Nauru to Australia over the last six months. Refugee Action Coalition spokesman Ian Rintoul says this is the Australian government in effect involved in another round of people trafficking. People came to Australia seeking protection. They were shifted to Manus and uh, Nauru, held offshore, told that they would never come to uh, come to Australia. Um, now in the final stages of Nauru, they're being told, you know, we are transferring you to Australia, but we're not going to give you a, you know, a permanent visa. It, it is just one more indication of the uh, very arbitrary way in which uh, refugees and asylum seekers have been treated by successive Australian governments. Anthony Albanese says Australia needs to seize the opportunity to become a global leader in renewable energy. Mr Albanese spoke at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia State of the Nation Conference in Canberra. His talk focused on Australia's chance to emerge as a global superpower when it comes to green energy solutions to the climate crisis. The Prime Minister says the energy transition is an opportunity for significant economic growth that, that Australians couldn't afford to miss. Renewable energy helps the environment. It means lower bills for households and lower input costs for business. It also presents a defining opportunity for economic growth the chance for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower. Guaranteeing our energy security reinforces our economic sovereignty. It gives us the opportunity to supply the economies of our region with green energy, strengthening our trade partnerships. Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty to all 37 federal charges laid against him over the alleged mishandling of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. 
He's facing his first federal indictment for the retention of classified documents and conspiracy to hide them with a top aide from the government and his own lawyers. The former U.S. president has left a Miami court after making the plea, taking a quick pit stop at a Miami bakery where he met with his supporters. Both fans and condemners of Mr. Trump rallied outside the court, which was closed to cameras and live broadcasts. This Miami resident, Osmani Estrada, says it's a historic day. The former American president is being indicted. Uh, the judge representing, his, well, at least the judge in the indictment is a Cuban-American judge. So, I mean, that's history in the making, right? In a city like Miami. So, I believe in, in democracy. I believe in the institution of democracy without faith. in the constitution of democracy is not democracy. Police in the United Kingdom say a man has been arrested on suspicion of murder after three people were found dead and three others injured on the street in the central English city of Nottingham. The three sustained their injuries following an attempt to run them over with a van. They are now being treated in hospital. Detectives say they are keeping an open mind about the motive for the linked incidents, adding that counterterrorism officers were working on the investigation. Two of those killed were students from one of the city's universities. A 31-year-old man has been arrested on suspicion of murder and detectives said they were not looking for anyone else. A witness says the incident was terrifying. There was two people turning the corner. He went straight in to these uh, two people. The woman went on the curb. Uh, the man went up in the air. It was such a bang. I wish, to, I, wish I never saw it because it's really shaken me up. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the support the alliance is providing to Ukraine is making a difference on the battlefield. With the counteroffensive officially launched, Ukraine's military has reclaimed several villages in the country's south. But Russian President Vladimir Putin says Ukrainian forces have suffered catastrophic losses in the process. Speaking at an open meeting with military journalists and bloggers, Mr. Putin said Ukraine has lost hundreds of armored vehicles, while he says Russia had only lost 54 of its tanks in the fighting. In a meeting with United States President Joe Biden, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Ukraine is making progress with its advances. It's still early days, but what we do know is that the more land Ukrainians are able to liberate, um, uh, the, 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 the stronger hand they will have at the negotiating table. And also the more likely it will be that President Putin at some stage will understand that he will never win this war or aggression uh, on, at the battle, on the battlefield. A junior doctor, a husband and a wife are among the victims so far identified after 10 wedding guests were killed in one of Australia's worst bus crashes in decades. The bus was returning guests from a wedding reception at one Dinner State winery in Lovedale to Singleton when it overturned at around 11.30pm on Sunday. Guests had travelled from Melbourne, Queensland, Byron Bay and Sydney to attend the event, which turned from a day of celebration into tragedy. And in sport, Nick Kyrgios' tennis comeback has ended with defeat. The 28-year-old returned to action after seven months out with a knee injury, but pain and mobility issues contributed to a 7-5, 6-3 defeat by China's Ye Bing Wu.
The two were participating in the first round of the Stuttgart Open with their match lasting just 68 minutes. While his serve was firing well despite four double faults, Kyrgios appeared reluctant to chase balls around the court and by the end was visibly troubled by his knee. During the changeover after the third game of the second set, Kyrgios could be overheard saying to his team, I feel my knee every point. I can't walk without pain. He then put his head in his hands. The world number 25 soldiered on and did not call for the trainer but continued to look troubled and hobbled off after the march. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny, 30 degrees, Perth, showers, 19, Adelaide, a shower, 217, Melbourne, possible shower, 15, Hobart, partly cloudy, 15, Albury, Wodonga, cloudy, 12, Canberra, partly cloudy, 11 degrees, Wollongong, wind easing, 17 degrees, Sydney, sunny 18, Newcastle, sunny day 20 degrees, Brisbane, sunny as well in the top of 25, Townsville, partly cloudy 26, Keynes, mostly sunny 29, Alice Springs, sunny and 20 degrees, Darwin, sunny 33, and Strait Islands, mostly cloudy day ahead in the top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. Radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 pm or anytime online. And that was uh, Pukulpa by Electric Fields. As you hear in our next story, Electric Fields duo collaborated with Frances Rings in her latest work, uh, Yuldea, that's premiering at Sydney Opera House tonight. And here is Bangara Dance Theatre's Artistic Director, Francis Rings, in conversation with NITV Radio's Luana Grant. Today I'm joined by Frances Rings, the Artistic Director of Bangara Dance Theatre, to chat about her inaugural year as Artistic Director, her latest work, All Dear, and how her family's personal connection inspired this body of work. Francis, thanks so much for joining me today on NITV Radio. Thanks, Luan. It's really great to have a chat with you today. I just want to say congratulations on this amazing and important appointment. How's it been since you stepped into this new role at the company? Oh, look, it's definitely a, a, a big step up. I, I thought I was busy before in the associate role, but you know, it's, just, um, you know it, it's great. I think you know you have to have big shoulders to carry the responsibility that goes with this role. Um, I think the biggest thing is creating this new work and I really wanted to be able to start my tenure with in this role as artistic director by sharing a work that's inspired by my country and you know the stories of my people. It's been such a, an incredible experience to be able to go back home and do research and work with the cultural consultant and um, community to ensure that we're telling the story the right way and that they approve and get permission. What inspired this body of work and you know your inspiration? What was the process that you went through to create it? So at Bangarra, we have a creative and cultural life cycle that is a guideline to how we create a work. And the I guess the the first part to that is when we have an idea for a new work that we have to ensure that we get permission and that we travel to community 
to um, to do a presentation um, for uh, approval to do the work and also to engage a cultural consultant or two to be able to ensure that um, that they're guiding the work and that we have uh, somebody with us who is going to help um, every step of the way to ensure that it's told in the right way and that um, and that they're they're involved um, in the making of it. I went end last year to community to Yalata Aboriginal community and did the presentation to the board and. That's you know that's a whole that's a very intimidating experience yeah. because you know you you know you got mob and they're like you know cultural governance is strict and they're tough and yeah but they were really great and they approved it and they said look you know this story is really important and this is you know your family's story so you need to you know now is the the right time to tell it so you know with that with that blessing you know we were able to come back and do research and then we were also able to take the dancers onto country um to be able to hear history and meet the community and um get an immersion you know on on country to see that and feel that so that they can connect with that when we're in the studio and also when we're in the studio creating the work, but also on stage, that they have an authentic connection with it. You can't be gammoned with that kind of stuff. You have to you know, really make sure you get that right because you're representing mob. Yeah. You're representing that area and it has to be done in the right way. So I think now that we're at this end, we're, you know, we've got community night and then we've got opening and you know, we're on the tail end of that experience, but also the beginning where I let go and I hand it over to the dancers and, and the production crew and they, you know, it becomes this living, breathing, you know, um, have to, you know, um, let them carry it forward and let that story grow. It's been a long process, but really incredible and rich. And I don't know any company in the world that does this, but we I cannot imagine making it work without going through this process and um, it really does connect it back to back to community, back to mob and also, you know, the last part to that creative and cultural life cycle is that we take the work back to community and we do a performance um, back there and um, for the community and we do workshops and we're in residence so it has this big cycle that ensures that everything returns back and everything um, is about, you know, um, ensuring that that story is done in the right way and ensuring that the the community benefits from this. And yeah, I think I'll, I never um, stop marveling at this, you know, what this experience, um, all the great things that come out of it. I just also wanted to ask about the music. Um, it weaves contemporary and traditional um, and the score composed by Leon Rogers, but you've also got the talented duo Electric Fields involved in the production as well. How did that collaboration come about? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think um, I, I was down in, um, in South Australia and my sister was able to link us up and... Um, uh, get us together for a meeting because, you know, I've, I've admired them for so long and I knew I wanted to do this work and um, my grandmother comes from a place kind of north of where Aldier is and um, the south of where Mimili is. That's where Zachariah's country, his, his community is. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted this um, 
I thought it was important to have this Anangul sonic energy represented in in the work, and we were able to um, get them to create our opening piece, which is called Supernova, and um, it's just this magical opening to the work, and you know, you know, inspired by the generations of Anangul clans that have observed the night's night sky and had this connection to sky country and um you know that cycle of creation and destruction that um that they have observed through um through that observation and of sky country and also the knowledge that has been necessary to sustain life in a harsh desert environment and they have created this piece and it's you know it's <laughs> just this cosmic cultural experience mm. uh, and they were also able to collaborate with Leon on the final piece which really is a celebration of you know that incredible sight of Uldia but how it's kept alive today in the memories of um, of generations who have um, ensured that it's not forgotten that it's protected that it's cared for and that it's important everything that's happened to that that incredible site um, you know it was a site of permanent water it was a major meeting place and an epicenter for cultural life and um, you know it's the traditional lands of the Gulbisa people you know it's just endured so much and we know that um, with this country's growth and progress it's come at the expense of indigenous people and their lives and there are always two stories to the story of our country. I pride, you know, what we do at Bangara and our platform is to be able to ensure that that story gets told and that through our medium of dance theatre that we're able to tr- truth tell and, um, and remember history from the perspective of First Nations people. You know, these, these stories are powerful reminders of how strong and resilient our mobs are. I'm so proud that, you know, a work like this exists. And what an incredible privilege um, to be able to carry the story and share it and to be able to give people insight into um, what mob endured. Well, you're doing incredible work and, um, you know, such important work as well. So thank you so much, Francis, for taking the time to chat to us on NITV Radio. And it's been such a pleasure to catch up with you again and all the best with the upcoming national tour for Aldea as well. Thank you, Luana. So great to chat with you. And Aldea opens at Sydney Opera House on the 14th of June and will be touring nationally in Canberra, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne and wrapping up in Bendigo in October. You can get your tickets from bangara.com.au. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Coming up next, we explore Norwegian Institute's third Global Health and Wellbeing Conference, a three-day event that's kicking off in Cairns today. Norwegian Institute's Third International Indigenous Health and Wellbeing Conference is kicking off this week. And joining us to explore this year's landmark event is Janine Mohamed, CEO of Norwegian Institute. Janine, first of all, welcome to NITV Radio. Oh, thank you for having me. 
This conference is taking place in the backdrop of a national conversation around Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Has this mm. influenced the agenda at all of the upcoming event? Yeah, I think um, we couldn't avoid it. And absolutely, it's part of the event. Um, our first speaker is Marcia Langton. Uh, Tom Karma is also attending. And of course, our patron of the Lower Institute is uh, Pat Anderson, who's one of the architects of the Illyria Statement from the Heart. Um, so I'm sure there will uh, be many conversations had over the next three days. And uh, this is uh, the third instalment of uh, the, the of Luigi's uh, uh, Global Indigenous Health Conferences. And days before even the event kicks off, it's been sold out. What's the story behind the success of uh, Luigi's uh, conferences? I think, look, as a community-controlled organisation, um, you know, we've got our finger on the pulse with our community, our researchers, for the last, I think it's probably been the long planning that we've had, thanks to COVID <laughs> as well, that we've been able to put together a really great agenda. I think it, people are, so it's two things. I think it's about people coming back together again from the health sector has really influenced um, the sellout of the conference as well as our agenda. Um, and that's only been possible through, you know, the great yeses that we've got from these amazing keynote speakers and our plenary panels. Um, yes, I think that um, the success has really been the people. Yeah, and also, as you mentioned, uh, people not being able to meet in the last three years due to COVID, and now finally international delegates are able to come in freely and even people will be able to travel freely around the country and uh, get to meet in person after three years of... Uh, yeah, after yeah. The, and yeah. it's pretty cold down in those southern states at the moment, so we're in a, a beautiful tropical backdrop as well with some nice weather, and I think that sort of has its pluses, a draw card, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're expecting international guests as well and uh, uh, presenters. Can you run us through some of the most anticipated uh, international guests? Yeah, well, we opened with um, Karen Driver. Karen used to be the uh, Native American Affairs Advisor to President Barack Obama, um, and she's a tribal leader. Um, Dr. Lisa Bearskin, um, also known as Mona, one of my uh, very good friends that I met during nursing. Uh, she's a Cremates registered nurse and uh, a leader, you know, in that profession as well. And she's from Beaver Lake in the Cree Nation. Um, look, I'm sure everyone's really looking forward to, you know, our um, fantastic seminal researchers, I think I can call them, which is Janet Smiley. Uh, she has a, a research focus on family medicine in diverse First Nations um you know, being Inuit and Maitis community context. And we've also got from across the ditch from Aotearoa, Paparangi Reid, an amazing, um, you know, truth teller. Uh, she always has such a, you know, Indigenous sense of humour that I'm sure she'll um, not only impart some <laughs> deep wisdom, but also have us laughing as well. Yeah, I've looked at the panel discussions. All of them look compelling and uh, mm. jump-packing so many powerful conversations in such a short time span sounds almost impossible. Well, it does sound impossible and I think it's going to be a hard choice for our delegates. So, um, you know, there will be, for the for the keynote addresses at least, for people that miss out in the morning that you know, had to go and do other things, they will be able to, or they weren't able to register. Uh, we will, on the Lower Institute website, be able to 
um, you know, upload and people will be able to view those keynote addresses again. Yeah, I'm just going to go through some of the panel discussions. Is Voice, Truth and Treaty with Australian and Global Experts. Then another one on Justice and Health, Climate and Health. And this one catches my eye specifically because this week there's a landmark court case where they're examining mm-hmm. um, the traditional owner's call on the government to act on uh, climate change. Otherwise, um, mm-hmm. you know, the dire consequences are just in front of us and we'll be witnessing mm-hmm. the first climate refugees. And one of the panelists in one of the events is Daniel Billy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, from Torres Strait 8. Yeah. So I had the pleasure of meeting Daniel um, at the United Nations and he's just an amazing, superb, um, you know, person, advocate for his community. Um, and, you know, people have to wear these hats because, you know, their homelands, um, their cultural connection to those lands, um, sacred sites are, are being, you know, soon going to be um, invaded by the oceans. Um, and you know, one of the things that we heard about at the United Nations is that we're going to have climate refugees as well. So, you know, not only is it a land issue, it's a people issue um, and it's an all of us um, issue that's, as you said, you know, very imminent. Um, and Lowitcher Institute, we had a focus on climate and health in the last couple of years. You know, we've heard some uh, compelling, horrible stories from our community about, you know, having insulin in their fridge and because of high temperatures, you know, they've, and you know, obviously food in their fridge as well, but because of high temperatures, they've had the electricity gone off, couldn't afford petrol or diesel for their generators. You know, and, and spoilt, you know, life-saving medication and food, um, let alone, you know, water holes that have been here for 60,000 years that are a part of our storytelling um, are gone. And so are the flora and fauna around those water holes. So those are some of the, you know, discussions, um, but also some of the, um, I suppose, solutions that we're going to be talking about at our conference. And again, uh, looking at the participants, I uh, just saw names that uh, you wouldn't expect in a health conference. But it's not just about health, it's general well-being. I see people like Adam Goods, uh, mm-hmm. Maggie Walter from the Yorick uh, Justice Commission mm-hmm. here in Victoria, mm-hmm. Amy mm-hmm. Rust from the First People's Assembly of Victoria as well, and mm-hmm. uh, South Australia's Commissioner for First Nations Voices. A holistic approach to health. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, being an Indigenous organisation... It's you know only right that we you know we look at that holistic um, approach to health, but it's not about the, just the social determinants, but the cultural determinants of our health. And of course, um, and we are a national peak uh, research organisation, so we've got some amazing speakers from um, again from Aotearoa and Linda Tuahu Smith and Dr. Carwin Jones, both leaders in their field, um, you know, to talk to us about their seminal work in decolonizing methodologies. Um, yeah, so it's going to be a fantastic lineup and there'll be something for everyone in the audience. And what's the expected outcome? Look, I think there's going to be lots of outcomes um, from the conference, but there'll also be lots of questions that we have for government as well at the end of the conference. So a big outcome for us is really knowledge translation. So listening and being able to uh, hear what other Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities locally and Indigenous communities globally have done um, and being able to translate that knowledge back to our own communities, which is so very important. You know, we've had so much research done on us um, and not benefited from that research in any way, shape or form. 
Um, and another big outcome is us uh, setting our research agenda for the next two years. So we commission research out and people apply for research to us. So um, what are the themes of that research that we're going to be asking researchers to consider? Um, yeah, and then growing our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health research workforce, which we desperately need to do, um, you know, Indigenous-led research. So those are just some of the big headlines that, you know, that um, or outcomes, should I say, that we want to get out of this conference. But then some really practical things like what are we going to focus on going forward in our policy and advocacy um, pursuits. Janine Mohamed, CEO of Louisa Institute, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Thank you, NITV. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Joining us on NITV Radio is Professor Julie Andrews, Academic Director of Indigenous Research at La Trobe University, who's just been awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in the King's Birthday 2023 Honours List. First of all, Professor Andrews, welcome to NITV Radio and congratulations on your recognition. Thank you very much. You are a distinguished academic currently leading the development of the La Trobe University Indigenous Research Centre. You are also a tireless supporter of Indigenous communities. How does it feel being acknowledged today? It's a strange feeling. Um, I'm actually proud of it because uh, I'd probably be the third generation in my family that's received uh, a Queen and King's Honour, probably the first in my family to to receive the King's Honour. But yes, I um, we have several women in our family that receive this honour, so I'm really proud to be included in this kind of recognition for the work that Aboriginal people do towards community development. This is a, a really a big uh, milestone, not just for you, but for women in general as well, because for the first time, there are more recipient women recipient recipients than men and you say you come from a line of uh, strong women who've uh, marked your life can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the women's participation and the influence they've had in your life and your own experience yes well my grandmother Geraldine Briggs received the order of Australia and um, she was very proud of that and that was for her work in community development and political resistance for Aboriginal advancement, self-determination. My auntie, Naomi Mayers, received an Order of Australia for her work in Aboriginal health, especially in Redfern, Sydney. Um, my great-auntie, Margaret Tucker, received a um, member of the British Empire for her contribution to uh, stolen generations telling the story of being removed um, as a young girl and once she uh, came back into the community after being removed, she worked tirelessly for Aboriginal advancement uh, alongside other women and men in Victoria. So, yes, I was, um, my cousin has also... She received the Order of Australia last year and uh, she received that for her work for women's advancement and I've received this one for my contribution to Indigenous higher education. 
Wow, and higher education is something that uh, I would say runs in your blood. Uh, you uh, had these values instilled in you uh, through education and uh, from a very young age, actually, by your mother. And uh... Yes, well, all my elders, I'm Yorta Yorta, and so I'm reflecting on all my elders like Pastor Sir Douglas Nichols, who said, you know, the only way we're going to advance is through education. So that was one of the um, quotes that I've always considered when I look at my contribution to education. I can see that so clearly now. Uh, my auntie, Hillis Maris, set up the first Aboriginal um, secondary school in Victoria and, and it was on the, you know, the provision that um, culture and education is a strong identity factor for our students to excel from as a base. So having your cultural identity in the curriculum is very, very important for our people. It gives us a voice and a platform to uh, express ourselves, but also to bring our Indigenous knowledges into the classroom. Yeah. Said that uh, in the 1970s, your mum enrolled you at the Black Community School in Townsville, a school established by Eddie Koiki Mabo and uh, Bonita Mabo. How did uh, enrolling in this school influence uh, your education and your career? In my education, I've gone to about 12 schools, right? Primary yeah. and secondary. And I went to Townsville, and it was the first school I enrolled in. Council West and there was a new system of math. It was a different system of teaching. It was quite um, disciplinarian and uh, I struggled a lot with trying to quickly understand mathematics as it was done in council at the time. It wasn't a, um, one of my happy memories of, of schooling but when uh, my mother enrolled me into the black community school with Aunty Netta and Uncle Eddie it, it became like our home. It was a lovely place to be. And our education was very, very different. It wasn't formal. You know, we'd start off the day, we'd walk up and read the um, timetable for our class. And uh, we were doing things like maths and reading and English. But in the afternoon, we'd be doing culture and language and music and dance and you know it was just a culturally safe space to be and we hear this term of culturally safe today and um, I know exactly what that word means when I think about myself growing up in education thanks to the Black Community School. And this has inspired your career since a very, very, very young age, which is uh, tremendous. Now, yes, well, you know, I, everything I do, I do for um, my elders that have taught me um, how to, you know, be resilient and proud and to use my cultural knowledge to excel and help others. This has been acknowledged not only nationally, your Vice-Chancellor, Professor Susan Dodd, said uh, that uh, your contribution to your field is significant 
as well as your ongoing dedication to the university itself, not only the community, the university as well is acknowledging your tremendous work. Yes, that was nice of her to say that. I teach on country uh, courses to my students and they're black and white students and a lot of my students uh, really value the cultural experience but also learning about cultural knowledge and how to engage with Aboriginal elders and community around difficult issues and how to talk and engage and learn from Aboriginal communities. So I've got a strong commitment to La Trobe University because it's situated across the largest Aboriginal populations in Northern Victoria. So it's very relevant to um, my work and that's probably why I've stayed at La Trobe for so long. My last question, what would be your message to the community or your closing words uh, upon winning this uh, prestigious award? I dedicate this to my mother, but I also dedicate it to all the elders and men and women who have worked tirelessly for the advancement of our people across Australia. And it gives me pleasure to um, be a role model the people by accepting this honour and it's going to be beneficial in ways I don't know what will come out of it but you know for me it's it's about um, being a leader for my community and people and students and uh, that's all I care about really. Professor Julie Andrews thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on ITV Radio today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's all from NITV Radio this Wednesday afternoon. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Thanking you for being with us today. Till next time. Bye for now. Yalu. <laughs> <laughs>